Back to 1 Corinthians 15, please, where we'll pick up at verse 35. In God's kind providence, we started in 1 Corinthians on Easter Sunday. So far, we've considered the role of the resurrection in our salvation, the resurrection gospel, the resurrection evidence, the resurrection grace. We've spent three weeks unfolding the resurrection implications, and now we come to the resurrection body. As you turn, may I remind you of something we said at the very beginning of these studies in chapter 15, back on Easter morning, that Paul is at such pains to develop the doctrine of the physical bodily resurrection here precisely because some in the Corinthian congregation were actually saying that, verse 10, there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, who was saying that? Uh, We don't know, not for sure. Paul doesn't say, the Bible doesn't identify them specifically, so we're left to deduce. Had the Jewish Sadducees infiltrated the pews in Corinth with their false teaching, denying the resurrection of the dead for which Jesus had to call them out during his earthly ministry? That is possible. Another possibility is that the hyper-preterist view pronounced, uh, propounded by men like uh Hymenaeus and Philetus, whom Paul had to rebuke elsewhere, we remember from our time in Timothy, had found a roost in Corinth. They were wont to teach that things that the Bible says are going to take place in the future have already taken place in the past. Taking future events and shoving them back in their uh, theology, specifically their eschatology, their view of of uh, the history of God's redemption, and uh, saying that the resurrection had already happened perhaps in some sort of a spiritualized fashion, and therefore there was no future physical resurrection to anticipate. Well, I have a very easy answer for them. Daily glances in the morning mirror uh, suffice, revealing that things are further today from where they're supposed to be than they were yesterday, and uh, that this is most certainly not uh, the resurrected body, eloquent witness that the resurrection is still coming. But the strongest possibility is that Greek philosophy had uh, made its way into the church. It's not unlikely, considering the fact that Corinth has been called a suburb of Athens. And uh, you remember that it was in Athens that Paul faced off with the Stoics and the Epicureans, uh, the philosophers there, before moving south to this Port City. Many of those Greek philosophers at the Areopagus in Athens mocked his resurrection. We remember, or mocked his teaching on the resurrection in Acts 17. I'll spare you the long lesson on Greek philosophy this morning. You can study that for yourselves. But to briefly put the Greek view, believe that the physical body was basically bad or inferior, while the spiritual is good and superior. It was a sort of radical, dualistic view of the world and of human beings in particular. Death was therefore, to their view, the good souls escape from the bad body. So why would anyone ever dream it a good thing for soul and body to be rejoined in the physical resurrection? Yuck! They didn't have any problem with the idea of uh, an eternal soul. 
But the idea of a resurrected body just disgusted them and indeed incited their ridicule, as I mentioned, when Paul proclaimed it to them. But are we in danger of unbelief in the physical resurrection and the bodily resurrection of the dead today in the church? Well, you tell me. A full third of the clergy of the Church of England doubt or disbelieve in the physical resurrection of Jesus, let alone Christians. Roughly half of American Christians who call themselves mainline Protestants believe in the resurrection of the dead, according to a poll published in First Things magazine, while evangelical Protestants are doing a little better. We're hovering right around 80% who believe in the resurrection. But perhaps the greater danger to us Bible-believing Christians is not the outright denial or disbelief of the resurrection, the physical resurrection, but rather simply disregard for it. Think about it. When, when you imagine your final eternal state, the way you will spend the rest of eternity, what do you see? Do you imagine yourself as a, as a physical being, or do you think more in immaterial terms? A misty, floating on the clouds, maybe. Or a living, breathing, walking, talking, genuine human being striding across the renewed earth on resurrection legs. Seems like we could all use a healthy dose of reality concerning the physical resurrection, and what better medicine for us than a good hard look at the resurrection at our resurrection bodies. That's what Paul treats us to, beginning in verse 35. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not hidden these things from us. There are many things that we don't know, many secret things, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So we pray that you will open our eyes to marvelous things once again, revealed by your Holy Spirit, whose ministry we once again plead for. In Jesus' name, amen. First Corinthians 15, picking up at 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. 
is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, and it was the man of dust. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Do you long for the resurrection, my brothers and sisters? I long for the day when I will rise from the grave and see him and see Jesus or else meet him while walking along the road or awaken from my sleep when he comes Again, I long for that day, and I hope that you do too, because on it we will be transformed, we who are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 is not the only biblical portal through which we may look to peer at that glorious future, to be sure, but it is the most perspicuous, I think. It is the the clearest and most comprehensive view of our lives as they shall be lived and of our bodies as they shall look and behave after the resurrection. But what shall we be like? What shall we be like when we rise from the grave or are instantly transformed at the trumpet sound while walking along the sidewalk or or between one footfall and the next walking down the aisle of the grocery store of Walmart? Or to ask it in terms of our text, verse 35, with what kind of body will we come? What will we be like? Well, the simple answer to that question is that we will be like the risen Jesus Christ. To quote another of Paul's letters, that one to the Philippians, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Or as the Apostle John puts it even more simply, we shall be like him. But inquiring minds want to know, don't they? (laughs) We want to know more. When God completes our redemption, that wonderful gift of his grace purchased for us on the cross, what will our bodies be like? Will we be a sort of patched up version of our current selves? Will we be anything like ourselves? We've been transformed by God's grace inwardly already, haven't we? By the new birth, our regeneration and sanctification being made holy and more and more so. But what what of outward transformation? I love the way J.I. Packer puts it. He writes, my present body, brother ass, as Francis of Assisi would have me call it, is like a student's jalopy. 
an old jalopy. Care for it as I will. It goes precariously and never very well and often lets me down and my master down. Very frustrating. But my new body will feel and behave like a Rolls Royce and then my service will no longer be spoiled. From jalopies to Rolls Royces. There's a wonderful picture. No doubt, Packer continues, like me, you both love your body because it's part of you and get mad at it because of the way it limits you. So we should, and it is good to know that God's aim in giving us second-rate physical frames here is to prepare us for managing uh, better bodies hereafter. As C.S. Lewis says somewhere, they give you unimpressive horses to learn to ride on, and only when you're ready for it are you allowed an animal that will gallop and jump. Is your appetite Wedded yet, Christian? Do you want to more or no more? I know I do. Paul gives us a glimpse in the form of four comparisons between our bodies as they exist now and as they shall exist at the resurrection. Having compared our eventual burial in the earth to the sowing of a seed that springs from the ground as a plant, he contrasts our bodies before and after the resurrection of the dead, in these four ways, verse beginning in verse 42, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Look with me at those four. Imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. First, our bodies of the resurrection will be imperishable. That, and that our bodies will be imperishable is only right since another apostle, Peter, says that we will have an inheritance that will never perish. We'll consider that more this evening in our evening service. We will have imperishable bodies with which we will enjoy our imperishable inheritance. Right now, our bodies are perishable, aren't they? Very much so. They're presently subject to corruption, change and decay, and all around I see. We sing uh, to our Lord oftentimes in our evening worship service, and nowhere do we see that change and decay more clearly than in our bodies. We see it, I say, in the morning mirror. We see it when we go to the doctor's office and and are sitting in the dentist chair, and they lift those X-rays before us to show us visibly how we are decaying. The seeds of disease and death are sown in us, leading to the inexorable conclusion that it's only a matter of time before this dies. Before we die physically, but when we rise, my brothers and sisters, when we rise or are transformed, either one, at the coming of our Lord for us, we will be imperishable, incorruptible, no longer susceptible to any disease, no longer subject to death. Just think of it. No more diabetes, no more arthritis, no more osteoporosis, no more lupus or HIV or HPV or epilepsy or meningitis or 
hepatitis or heart disease or high blood pressure, cancer will be no more banished forever. You will be disease-free forever and ever and ever and ever without end. My, my, what will our physicians do for a living then? <laughs> I guess you could take up gardening, something, something constructive. Uh, you're doing constructive work, excuse me. Uh, but what will our, what will our undertakers do? They're going to have to find new employment too, aren't they, on that day? Our second, our bodies at the resurrection will be glorious. Now what must that mean that we will have glorious bodies? Think about it. Roll it over your minds. Are we, are we going to glow with glory? The contrast in verse 43 is between dishonor and glory. Oh, we sow the seed of our loved ones as gloriously as we can, don't we? We dress him up in his best clothes. We surround her in a casket with beautiful flowers and even apply makeup to uh, help them look as glorious as possible. And, and that's right. That's right that we should do so. The tender care, the attention to our dead is a mark of biblical Christianity. It's the adorning witness of our confidence in the resurrection of the dead. That's why we bury our dead, not burn them. Some missionary friends of ours in Serbia, the Baldwins, sent us pictures of a typical funeral there. The body lay in a casket, to be sure, but a simple wooden box, gray and bluish of skin, mouth agape, coins keeping the eyelids closed. There is no attempt in that land, apparently, to hide the dishonor of death. Death does, of course, despite our best efforts, steal our honor. It undoes our pretensions to honor, doesn't it? Not much honor in being lowered six feet into the cold ground. But when we who are in Christ arise, it will be just the opposite in every way. It's hard to know exactly how that glory will be evidenced visibly, but it will. In his classic work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis takes a stab at, de at describing our transformed body as a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A, a bright, stainless mirror that reflects to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That's what you will be, and what I will be. Third, our bodies at the resurrection will be powerful. We're so weak now, aren't we? We're so weak. Weaker than I think we even appreciate. Then we will be strong. A few hours of work tires us out. 
in this life. Even when we're unconscious of our weakness, we're suffering weakness, aren't we? Those of us who are entering into our middle age are learning what our elders have long known before us, just how weak we truly are in body and in mind, and ever increasingly so with the passing of the years. Those of you who have spent any time at the deathbed of a loved one know just how weak we are at death, how utterly helpless. But we will be raised. Powerful, powerful creatures and strong. Again, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I'm sorry to say that there's so much more that we don't know about the resurrection than we do about what our existence will be like then. I think maybe that will make the surprise all the more wonderful when we come into that inheritance. No truer word ever came from Paul's pen, did it? Then he wrote earlier in the same letter, No eye seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Take some time this afternoon. What a wonderful Sabbath afternoon thing today to let your imagination, your sanctified imagination fly. To think what it must be to have power coursing through your limbs and through your sharp, unclouded, clear mind. The ideas that you will be able to think and think clearly and remember and build upon forever. The weakness that limits our service to our master will be gone. Indefatigable vitality, vim and vigor will be ours forever in full and unbounding, unending measure and supply. You will never, ever again know the words. You will never hear them cross your own lips. I'm tired. Never again. Fourth, our bodies of the resurrection will be spiritual. Now, beware. Here, we're not talking about Buddhism or Hinduism or Eastern religions uh, now taking a deep foothold in our nation, by the way, which teach that the body is uh, something in evil from which our souls must escape or transcend. None of that New Age nonsense uh, for us. Our bodies will be spiritual, Paul says, but they will still be bodies. The comparison here is not between physical and non-physical, but between natural and spiritual. That's the comparison. Elsewhere, Paul says that the resurrection, we will be made like Christ. Well, remember, if we're going to be made like the risen Christ, think about the risen Christ. He ate, he drank, he walked, he talked, he could be touched. He even still bore the scars in his spiritual body that were inflicted on his natural body, nailed to the cross before his death, at his death. So whatever Paul means by spiritual bodies, they're still physical and material. This is this is the resurrection body that Paul is talking about here. Just like Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Our bodies, your body is as precious to God 
as your soul. Now let that sink in because it affects everything. Absolutely everything. It affects the way we live. It affects the, the way we treat our bodies, the way we use our bodies, the way we treat dead bodies. Your body is as special, important, personally created by God as your soul is. Created and redeemed. Jesus didn't die merely to save our souls, but to save our bodies. Now, it's also going to be interesting, the differences, isn't it? Because we know all those things about Jesus, but we also know that he could appear in a room without opening the door. He could pass through walls. My, my. Will we be able to do the same? I don't... Don't exactly know, but it, but this I do know. We will have bodies indeed, but they will be renewed spiritual bodies. It's been argued uh, by someone who uh, would know, Anthony Hukama, uh, that uh, what is meant here by spiritual is completely and totally, utterly ruled by the Holy Spirit forever through with sin. Well, that may well be. There's so much here that we don't understand. And will not fully until we've experienced it on that grand day. Trying to grasp the fullness of what we will be then must be something akin to, to the cumbrous crawling caterpillar attempting to imagine one day flitting, fleeting and flower dancing with wings. Harry Blamiers, in an article in Christianity Today, wondered aloud this. What an angel, he said, what, what would an angel find if he looked up man in, and woman in the Encyclopedia Caelestis, the Encyclopedia of Heaven? This is what he would read. The name given to the larvae of the saved in their pre-pupil stage as terrestrial beings. They're two-legged, two-armed, two-eyed, and two-ears. Two-eared and the most degenerate specimens are said to be two-faced. They are wingless. They have only a rudimentary sensitivity to reality. They tend to measure everything wholly on the basis of their immature understanding as creatures imprisoned in the time, in the space-time continuum. Well, that sounds about right, doesn't it? I don't know if I like being described as larvae. It must be being described as larvae, but uh, you get the picture. But even with our limited understanding, we may do this. We may hope and we may look with expectation and anticipation at that great day when we will rejoin our bodies. You understand, of course, that if Christ doesn't come first, your body and soul will separate but they will come back together. And my, my, the, the jalopies we buried will come out of the ground as Rolls Royces. What a day. You know of Johnny Erickson Tata, right? You've all heard that name. You've probably heard her messages even on the radio. Remember how she was injured in a diving accident in 1967. It left her totally quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck 
down. Since then, through her personal faith and the organization she's developed for the support of people with disabilities, she, she has brought encouragement to and practical help to thousands, thousands of millions, I shouldn't wonder. Johnny wrote in one of her books, I can scarcely believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees and no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body light and bright and clothed in righteousness powerful and dazzling can you imagine the hope this gives someone with a spinal cord injury like me or someone who is cerebral palsied brain injured or who has multiple sclerosis imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. It's the physical nature of the resurrection which has inspired Johnny, isn't it? She's excited, she writes, over how like the rock of Gibraltar heaven is. We shall touch and taste, rule and reign, move and run, laugh and never have reason to cry. Johnny describes a Christian convention at which the speaker at the close of the message asked the audience to kneel for prayer. Well, there she was. She watched as they did so, but of course she couldn't. She couldn't kneel herself, so she couldn't stop the tears. It was particularly hard for her because she'd been brought up in a church accustomed to kneeling for prayer. And then then she remembered the resurrection. Sitting there, Johnny writes, I was reminded that in heaven I will be free to jump dance, kick, and do aerobics. And though I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on tiptoe, there's something I plan to do that may please him more. If possible, somewhere, sometime, before the party gets going, sometime before the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified Knees, I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. Well, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, let's, let's plan to join her, shall we? We will. Because the resurrection is coming. And with it, dear flock, Resurrected bodies. Praise God. Oh, Lord, quickly come. Amen.